find the Jumbleman doll. Me too, me too. Do you have any more in the back? <laughs> what? I see that one. <laughs> What did I say? These, these guys are looking for a uh, turbo man? A gentleman <laughs> dog, yes. <laughs> They're looking for turbo man. <laughs> hey, everybody, these two are looking for a turbo man. Shut up, man. Now, what's so funny? Where have you guys been? Turbo Man's only the hottest selling Christmas toy ever. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? We got plenty of Turbo Man's faithful Saber Tooth Tiger Booster. Where's your Christmas spirit? That's better. Now, there must be a Turbo Man around here somewhere. Oh. The last one just left. Um, some lady had it on layaway. A lady? What lady? Uh, uh, just short, uh, with a fur coat. Fur coat. Uh-huh. Sorry, buddy. Oh. Give me this. Hey! This is war. Unfortunately, I think that's what dominates our minds of Christmas time. I literally watched last uh, last week. There was like a top ten countdown of all the Black Friday fights and stuff, and it was rather amusing and sad at the same time to see that people were fighting over like a fifty dollars speaker, you know, or just some piece of junk they didn't even know they wanted, and then they realized they had to have it simply because it was on sale. You know what I mean? And really, you can get that sale any time of the year or online, but just because it's Black Friday, it's just, it's crazy. And I, that's what I begin to think about is how to survive Christmas. Not surviving what Christmas is, what it, it should be, what it was intended to be, but surviving what Christmas has become. That's really the thing, surviving what it has become because it's turned into something that I don't think was ever the intention. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to spend three weeks demonizing Christmas as we know it. But I think in order to survive Christmas, what we really need to do is we need to reconnect with the story. We need to ask this question, what is Christmas? Or better yet, what is the story of Christmas? If someone were to ask you, can you tell me the Christmas story? Can you explain Christmas to me? Could you do it? What would you say? Would you, would you talk about reindeer and, and, and snowmen and elves on the shelf? You know what I mean? They're pretty popular now, right? If what kid doesn't have an elf on the shelf they think is real? You can't touch it. It loses magical powers. Elf on the shelf. Uh, maybe, maybe you would say, making a list, checking it twice. Maybe you would say Jesus' birthday. We bake him a cake and we celebrate his birthday. Maybe, maybe that's what you would say. But the reality is, is I think it's become increasingly more difficult to sift through everything and just tell the story of Christmas. And I mean really tell the story of Christmas. Really take a step back and, and look at where it began in the book of, in the book of Matthew chapter 1 and really tell the story. And that's what this series is about, is, is about reconnecting with the story. It's not a, a, a war on what Christmas has become. It's not going to be a war on consumerism. It's simply a journey back to rediscovering what is the essence of Christmas, the wonder of Christmas, and the true power of Christmas, why we have continued to celebrate it for thousands and thousands of years. And I believe it has nothing to do with the gifts that we get or the gifts that we can buy. 
And so what I want to do this morning, if it's okay with you, is I want to begin where the story begins in Matthew. And I want you to listen. And I don't want you to check out and say, well, I've heard that all before. I know it's Jesus' birthday. You know, no, I don't want you to just to think that, just to dismiss it because you, you've heard it. And, and I'm not saying that you haven't heard it, but I want you to listen. Maybe, maybe there's a detail you haven't considered. Maybe there's an aspect to the story that, that will really speak to you. And, and the, the beauty of what Christmas really is can come alive again. If you have your Bibles, you can go with me. If not, it'll be behind me. But Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read portions of the first 17 verses. The first 17 verses of the book of Matthew are what's called the genealogy. It lists out historically whose father was who. And it is the line of King David and the line of Jesus. I'm going to read just a few portions of that. But here's what it says. So this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba and the widow of Uriah. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. All of those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 more from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 more generations from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. So what we have in this passage of Scripture is this. We have a history of Jesus' family, of King David's family. We have the history not only of their family, but it's of the Israelite people. The Israelites were God's chosen people. And at this point in time in history, this is who this is written to, the Israelites find themselves as a nation under Roman occupation. They are not a sovereign country. They have been conquered by the Roman people. And what they are doing is, is they are waiting and praying and hoping that God will intervene and rescue them. Now, as a nation, Israel has had its ups and downs. They've had their good leaders. They've had their bad leaders. They've had times of freedom, and they've had times of slavery and exile. So where they find themselves underneath Roman occupation, it is not anything new. Right? This is not, this is not a, a, oh my gosh, what's happening? This is unfortunately a tragic repetition in their history. And here they are waiting for God to intervene, and they have this hope. For a promised king. Why do they have this hope? Because God promised it to them in their ancient scriptures and and what we would call prophecy that a king would come and set them free and deliver them from the rule of another nation. And that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for a king to come, someone to come and declare war on Rome, for them to to abdicate the throne of whoever is ruling King Herod at the time and overthrow the, the Roman Empire and be a sovereign nation again. That's their hope. That's what they've been praying for. And we see in these, these opening verses, right, that this is a, a genealogy, and it's a genealogy of King David specifically. That, that's why I read it. King David, his name just jumps out because David was the greatest king in Israel's history. The empire blew up and expanded. He is considered the greatest king. And this clues us into who Jesus will be. Jesus is not yet born. He's not yet on this earth. We find out that he will be related to the king of David. He will be in the line or the lineage, as they would say, of David through his father, Joseph. Joseph was in the line of David. And as we get to the end of this genealogy and this revelation of who Jesus will be, the story then kind of turns on a dime and it shifts to an obscure little couple. These two people that in the grand scheme of history up until this point have not really been considered important or royalty in any way. They are very young. Mary is probably about 15 years old. Joseph is a little bit older. A very young 
couple. And that's where we pick up the story, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 19. So this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. This is where the story really begins, and it begins with this couple, this couple who is, as the word is really used, is betrothed. We don't really use that word in our culture very much, betrothed, but a betrothal is like an engagement, but it's far more serious. See, they practice arranged marriages in their culture. We don't do that. How many would be a fan of that? Right, that'd be weird, right, where someone else picks your spouse, but that's what they practice. They still practice it in the East, where they were an arranged marriage. So they were almost like married, but they weren't married yet. And it's really important to understand that they weren't. Because what Joseph finds out is, you know, we, we read here, it says that Mary's still a virgin, but, but Joseph, he finds out that she's pregnant. So what you have is, you've got a guy finding out that his wife's pregnant, or his soon-to-be wife is pregnant, and he didn't help her get pregnant. And understanding this, that in the culture that a, a premarital pregnancy was serious grounds for uh, severe punishment, very severe punishment. Joseph, he had the upper hand. He could have ruined Mary's life because she was pregnant. And all he knew is, is that she was pregnant with another man's baby. So think about it for a moment. You find out that your fiance is pregnant and you didn't help her get pregnant. What do you do? Or maybe you are the woman, you find out that your soon-to-be husband has a child on the way, and it sure ain't your child. What is it that you do? We find out that what Joseph does is, is that Joseph, he decides to say this, okay, I'm not going to ruin Mary's life. I'm not going to call her up on charges. I'm just going to quietly break this thing off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quietly begin the, the process of divorce. And so what we have here in this moment is, is we have the story of God saving humanity, right? This is how it begins. But here's how it begins, with a premarital pregnancy and the thought of divorce. That's how God decides to begin his, his plan to save humanity. And you think to yourself, that's pretty crazy. Have you ever had this thought, if I were God? Okay, maybe not. Maybe it's just me. I thought, if I were God, okay. If I were God... I don't think this is how I would start out the story. It doesn't seem very triumphant, does it? What you're telling me, if God is, is that your, your, your grand plan is to have a premarital pregnancy and the thought of divorce to start the story. And while it seems crazy for God to do that, at the other, on the other side of it, doesn't it seem incredibly ordinary? Doesn't that seem like a real-life scenario that we all engage and encounter? How many of you know somebody that, that you know that? Premier, how many, you, you may be, that was your process. It is an incredibly ordinary way for God to begin his story of saving humanity. A premarital pregnancy and the thought of divorce. And we read on. Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 24. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This is Joseph. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message to his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, 
and Joseph named him Jesus. So what we have is Joseph, after he's already decided to, you know, I'm going to divorce her. I'm not going to disgrace her, that he has a dream. And in this dream, an angel of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord comes to him in the dream and says, hey, bro, Joseph, look, I get it. You're freaked out, right? Mary's pregnant, no doubt about it. But here's what I want to let you know, Joseph. She's not pregnant with another man. She's still a virgin. So think about what your mind is doing at this point. How? Right? How is this possible? And the angel tells him this. She was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? That means it is a, what's called an immaculate conception. That the Holy Spirit put or supernaturally impregnated her with, the, with Jesus Christ. There was no sexual process by which this occurred. This is God supernaturally doing something. Now, as you're reading this, and if you're Joseph, good thing it was in a dream, because if this was real, he'd be like, yeah, that's a great excuse, right? Like, who wouldn't use that? Like, hey, it just happened. I don't even know, right? And so the angel goes on to tell him, so she's supernaturally pregnant, and Joseph, what you have to understand is, is this baby on the inside of her, you'll name him Jesus, and he will save the people from their sins. And not only that, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So Joseph, you've got to stay with Mary. Don't divorce her. Now, Joseph must have been a pretty amazing man, right? pretty trusting, pretty, pretty compassionate, and pretty sensitive to the things of the Lord because he wakes up and he decides to do what the angel tells him. He decides to believe that the angel is right, and he marries Mary. But there's an interesting detail here. It says he takes Mary to be his wife, but yet he does not have sex with her until after Jesus is born. They don't consummate the marriage until nine months later. See, the angel told Joseph that this baby that your wife, or soon-to-be wife, will carry, he is the promised one. He is the one that your ancient scriptures and your prophecies have told you all about. He is the king. He is, he, this, this is happening so this can be fulfilled. And I find it so amazing that, the, that God would include in the Bible this little detail of how they did not consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. But it just proves that there could be no argument as to who the father of the baby is. Mary, Both Mary and Joseph could say with 100% honesty, we did not consummate our marriage. We did not have sex before marriage. The Bible tells us that. We did not even have sex until the baby was born. So this baby is an immaculate conception. And see, it's at this point in the story where the whole thing kind of turns on the dime and it gets so big and wide. Because what we realize is, right, this is, this is no ordinary baby, is it? This is no ordinary pregnancy. What we have just discovered, Mary, Joseph, us, what we have just discovered is what God is saying is, Mary, you are pregnant with the Savior of humanity. You have, been, you have Emmanuel in you, that God is with us that God will come in the flesh and be a human being and be with you. That is what is going on. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to the world. And the greatest possible revelation is this, in the form of a baby. How ordinary does it seem that God would choose to reveal himself as a baby? As a baby. Not only that, he says it will be the highest revelation that man will ever see. There will be nothing greater to come other than Jesus. 
Jesus coming to this earth in the form of a baby will be the greatest revelation of who I am as God of the universe that you will ever lay your eyes upon. Again, if I were God, I don't think this is the path I would have chosen. But we read in Hebrews. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. It says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God has promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. What's that saying? That throughout history, up until this point, that God has used a lot of things. And he's spoken in a lot of ways and he's done a lot of amazing things. But he has spoken in finality with Jesus. Not with Jesus at the cross, but with Jesus as a baby. That the revelation of who he is would be no greater than what happened in what we call Christmas. And this is how the story begins. A premarital pregnancy, the thought of divorce, a dream, and a decision to just trust it and keep going. And we have the God of the universe coming to this earth, becoming what we call the incarnation, God becoming flesh in the world, that he enters life, human life as we know it, as a baby, as a vulnerable, fragile baby placed in the hands of a teenage mother and a young father in a stable surrounded by animals and shepherds in obscurity because there was no other place for them to go because the city was packed out. This is how God decides to start his story. No reindeer, no snowmen, no pillars of fire, no great announcement to the powers of the world that were ruling in that time. He does not come to the king. He does not come to the Roman emperor. He does not come to the religious leaders of Israel. He comes to a young teenage couple in a stable He is not in some beautiful thing. He is in a feeding trough, right? That is probably a a, a hunk of rock with some sort of hay on it, and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, and we think swaddling clothes are beautiful. No, they're not. There's stained pieces of cloth. And we say, silent night, holy night. Ain't nothing silent about that night. This woman's given birth. Right? Away in a manger. No crying he makes. Whatever. He's a baby. He's crying. And here they are. Newly married. Young. Believing they hold the God of the universe in their hands. Come on, somebody. That's how it begins. That's how the story of salvation begins. A premarital pregnancy. The thought of divorce and a stable. That's how it begins. That's the story of Christmas. And see, when you think about it, you think, what is the wonder and the beauty of Christmas? It is, it is the, what we call again, the incarnation. God becoming flesh. The decision from the God of the universe to become part of humanity, to be with us. The incarnation is full of wonder. It is a foundational belief for us who call ourselves Christ followers. We cannot believe in Christ if we don't believe in the incarnation because there would be no Christ to believe in. It's what we believe in. And see, the the incarnation answers a very simple yet deep and profound question that we all ask is, God, where are you? Anybody ever ask that? God, where are you? Or maybe more appropriately, God, where were you? 
God, where were you when this happened? Where were you when my mom, my brother, my sister, my uncle, my cousin, my friend died? Where were you when I lost my job? Where were you when I got cancer? God, where were you when my marriage was breaking down? God, where are you? Are you present in this life, in this world, in my life at all? And because of what happened on Christmas, we can go back to that and we see that the resounding answer is, yes, I am with you. But I did not show up as a king to rule and reign and take care of business, I showed up as a baby. What God is saying is, I'm not some far off being. I'm not some just divine entity that exists in, in the heavens. And maybe, just maybe, if you're good enough or if, you're, if you are lucky enough, you will sense my presence. No, it is the only story in any theological discipline, in any story of mythology, right, where the God, the deity comes to be part of humanity and entrusts himself to the hands of humans. That's the incarnation. That's what we believe. Is that God can now say, I am with you. Where am I? I am with you. I am present among you. I know what it is to live this life. I know what it is to be a human being. And I know what it is to be human in joy. I know what it is to be human in sufferings and in pain. I know what it is to be happy. I know what it is to lose. I know what it is to lose a best friend. I I, I know what that's like. I have been tempted in every way that you have been tempted. That is what Jesus can say. That's what our God can say because he came down and he put on flesh and he lived this life. And now what God has saying to us is, look, I just don't want to live life above you in the heavens. I don't want to live life around you. I don't want you to live life just for me. No, I want to live life with you. I want to be in relationship with you. And the reason we know that is not because we feel it, not because we got goosebumps during worship, not because we, we sense it. No, no, no. We know it because he became a human being. And there's a historical record to prove that, that Jesus actually walked on this earth. That God became a human being. And he entrusted himself in human hands. See, when we think of Jesus and we think of Christmas, we often think of it as a 33-year-old Jesus standing you know, teaching and preaching and walking around doing miracles. That was at the end of his life. That was not at the beginning of his life. And we, we have a tendency to, to detach ourselves from the very essence and the beauty and the wonder of what Christmas is of him being born as a baby. And if we can see that, I think it reconnects us with the meaning of what Christmas is. Can you imagine now sitting down and telling someone that story? Because, you know, as a Christ follower, someone says, well, I guess your life is just all good because you're a Christian. And you're like, my life, no, it ain't all good, if you only knew. But maybe if you could sit down with them and you could tell them, this is how it all began. A premarital pregnancy and the thought of divorce. What do you think about that? They'd be like, huh? I don't know about you, but I never really heard that growing up. I just had the, the beautiful, wonderful picture of glowing, swaddling clothes. And, hey, I wanted to be in the stable. I wanted to be with those angels. It smelled like cinnamon, cinnamon and cardamom. You know what I mean? And, and it, was, it was beautiful. There was, there was milk and cookies. And there was Rudolph over here. And there was all, it, was just, it all became this mess. And I, I missed out on what I think it really was. How beautiful it was. But how crazy and hectic and all of that at the same time. 
See, the series is called How to Survive Christmas. And I think one of the big questions that we have to answer then is, is, well, how do we really survive it? Like, it begs the question, is there going to be something practical that we can live out, or you just want us to know the story and you're going to tell it all, every week? We're going to tell more of the story, but what I think is this. We have to understand that Christmas, at the very beginning, it is a time for generosity. I don't know about you, but as I look at this story, I can't help but think of the generosity of God. How generous of a God that we serve that he decided that he would come to this earth as a human being simply to save us. You say, well, what does, what does generous really mean? Generous just means this. It's a readiness to give more of something than what is explicitly required or expected. A readiness to give more of something that is strictly required or expected. That's what generous means. It is, see, generosity, it is a desire. It is a willingness. It is an attitude. And you think, well, was God required to do what he did at Christmas? No, there was no requirement upon the God of the universe to do that. He was expected to do something because he said he would, and he is faithful and committed to what he said, but he did not have to do what he did. He gave more of something, and what is that something? Himself. That's what he gave. Christmas is a time of generosity, and it's not a time of financial generosity alone. Should you be generous with your finances? Yes, but all the time. Not just at Christmas. No, no, no. It's a generosity that comes from the relational side of things. See, God could have given a lot. God could have, he could have provided someone to come and, and, and kill the Romans and, and, and set the nation of Israel free. He could have done a lot of things, but he, he didn't do that. He didn't just give healing. He didn't just give financial provision. He didn't just give peace. No, he gave them someone that would set not only them, but you and I free from an eternal occupation of sin and restore a relationship with humanity. See, we want stuff. And God said, I I can do stuff. Stuff ain't no problem. But I gave you myself. What does that mean for Christmas? Look, you can give a bunch of stuff to people. In fact, you waited in lines to get stuff. I waited in line to get 82 pieces of silverware. (laughs) For a great price. But stuff has never changed my life. I do less dishes now, but other than that, I guarantee you, there is nothing you're going to go wait in line for, fight somebody for, get online, spend your last dollar for that's going to change anybody's life this Christmas. No piece of clothing, no piece of technology. I don't care how much you thought about the gift you give. It's great. It's wonderful. I'm glad you do that, but it's not going to change someone's life, and that person can do without it. You ever wonder how we stress about what we're going to buy people and they don't really care? Oh, awesome! What's next? Like, you buy kids gifts and they're playing with the box and the paper more than the gift and the thing? The greatest thing to do is to buy kids clothes. Right? Kids hate clothes, right? And they're like, oh, come on. Give me something I really need. And parents are like, woohoo, we got clothes. Anyway, there's no gift that you can buy that's going to change someone's life. But I guarantee you, one thing that will is you give them the gift of yourself. There are three things I want you to focus on this year for Christmas as it relates to generosity. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your attention. And be generous with your affection. See, I think the greatest thing that you could give and the greatest thing that you could receive is someone's time, their attention, and their affection. That's what changes you. That's what impacts you. And we live in a society and a culture today that we we don't have time for nothing. I mean, we'll be around people, but we won't be with people. 
right? Like we'll be there. And, and if this were a phone, we'll be like, we'll, we'll be with them, but we'll be like this. And then you see people walking like this. You know what I mean? How you doing? What do you think? You know what I mean? Whatever the case may be. And we even develop apps that open the camera while you're typing so you can see what's in front of you while you're on your phone. I mean, that's the craziness of it. Like we're so tied into technology and being connected, but it's a pseudo connection. Oh, I'm talking to my Facebook friends. They ain't your friends. No, you can just talk to them. I mean, we're always wondering, well, well, what if, what if someone calls me and what if they text me? You know what I mean? Anybody ever felt the phantom vibration in your pocket? You think your phone vibrated, you pull it out, nothing happened. You're like, whoa. I mean, that's how sick we are. Right? Where we're walking around responding more to the vibrations in our pocket than to the people that are in front of our face. You know? What I would encourage you to do this Christmas is to give of your time. Time is the most finite resource we have. And we all got the same amount. We all have 24 hours in a day. Seven days in a week. 365 days in a year. That's what we have. And here's the thing about time. We can't make more of it. No one has figured out how to generate time. Back to the Future was awesome, but it doesn't happen. I can't go back. I can't undo. I can't redo. I can't make more time. I have what I have, so how am I going to use it? Time is the great equalizer, isn't it? Not only that, you'll make time to be with people, but then give them your attention. What's your attention? It's your engagement. Engage them. Maybe you could leave your phone. When you go to someone's house for Christmas this year, maybe you could leave your phone in your car. How am I going to tell time? Go to Walmart and buy a watch and put it on. I, I don't know. Ask somebody. What if someone calls me? Call them back. What if they don't leave a message? Wasn't that important anyway. What if someone texts me? Text them back later. What if someone Facebooks me? What if someone Snapchats me? What if someone Instagrams me? Who cares? Who cares? Turn your phone off and just be present and talk to people. And engage them. Ask them how they're doing. Tell them how much you care about them, how much you love them. And that's part of giving your affection. Have some compassion. Have empathy. Well, you want me to do that to everybody? Well, you can't do that to everybody. But maybe if you're married, start with your spouse. Start with your kids. Start with your grandparents if they're alive. Say, I'm going to go and I'm going to be present. I'm going to be generous with my time. Generous with my attention. And generous with my affection, I'm going to have a willingness and a desire and an attitude to give more of that than what is expected or required. And I guarantee you, you'll have a better Christmas. See, you know, Lauren and I, well, I shouldn't say her and I, me, I was a curmudgeon at Christmas for a long time. And I say her with me because she had to deal with it. Part of the reason I was a curmudgeon is because, you know what, we were broke and we didn't have any money and I hated buying gifts. I hated buying, I hate buying obligatory gifts anyway. I just think there's nothing altruistic about it at all. Like, I'm buying you a gift. Why? Because I'm supposed to? Did you want to? No. I budgeted for this. You know what I mean? And so we had to go buy these gifts. What should we buy them? I don't know. What do they want? I don't know. Get them a gift card to Chili's. I mean, what? here I love you. Merry Christmas. Jesus died for you. Have a fajita on me. You know? I just, I don't see any redemptive value in that. And so one, and I told Lauren, I said, look, I'll tell you one thing I'm never doing. I'm never going into debt for Christmas, ever. And if you go into debt for Christmas, stop it. Please, stop. It is the dumbest thing that you could do. And you're only doing it because you're afraid of what people think about you. Don't, 
ruin yourself and put yourself in a prison to buy gifts for people that are going to end up in the trash a year later. Don't do it. Sorry if that's too personal, but I just think it's dumb. Somebody clap. Amen. Yeah. So I said, I'm not going into debt. Here's what we're going to do this year. I'm going to write letters to people. Now, it wasn't because I really wanted to write letters to people. It was like, I got to give them something. So I sat down and I started writing letters to family members. And there's something that happened in the process. I thought, wow, I really do love my family. You know, I really, <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I didn't wonder, but I really, I really appreciate them. I really, I have a lot of things that, to be thankful for. And I wrote them letters individually. And then we folded them up and we handed them out. And I didn't know if anybody really was impacted by it. You know, I didn't know if it, if, it, if it meant anything. All I knew was it didn't cost me anything. And um, I handed those letters out. And that was probably six or seven years ago. And, and I've changed a lot. Part of the thing is, is because we, we have more resources, so Christmas became a little more enjoyable um, to buy gifts for people. But what happened is I was always wondering, did, did it really make a difference? And I didn't do it with an intention to really make people, you know, tell them I love them. It was just out of necessity and out of curmudgeonly of re or whatever, if that's a word. But my great-grandma, she was about 94, 95. She died in June, uh, right around there. Um, and my mom was going through her things, and my mom... Uh, brought something to me. She handed me a piece of paper and said, Granny, your granny kept this. And I opened it up, and you know what it was? It was the letter that I had written her. And I read through it, and it brought back a lot of memories. You know, what I was feeling, what I was processing, sitting in my basement, borrowing somebody else's, the neighbor's Wi-Fi because I couldn't afford it. I say borrowing, I was really stealing, but <laughs> writing those letters. And um, I realized, you know, I, I bought my grandma a lot of things a number of things growing up. And she didn't keep any of that stuff. But what she did keep is this little letter that I wrote that I didn't, I wasn't trying to be good. I just was, you know, doing something. And then I looked through other things that she had kept. She'd kept pictures that we had colored her. She kept letters that we had written, things that we had done in school for her, horribly colored pictures. You know what I mean? Just like stuff that my son Carson, her great-great-grandchild had, had made and, and Con or her other one. And just, I saw what really mattered to my grandma at 94 years old was time, Attention and affection, not things, not things. I think that's what God understood at Christmas. Time, attention, and affection. And here's the amazing thing. The same hands, human hands that he put the baby in, he knew would be the same hands 33 years later that would crucify him. And he did it anyway. Why? Because of what we heard during worship. His unfailing, unconditional love for you and me. What is Christmas about? God becoming present with us to give us his time, his attention, his affection, to give us himself. So as you go out this Christmas and you go sit at parties and things, maybe you could do the same and give yourself. Could you bow your heads with me this morning? I just wanted to ask you to take a moment and just to, in this time, just say, Holy Spirit, who is it that I can be generous with my time, my attention, and my affection this holiday season? Who is it? I pray that he would just reveal that to you. Heavenly Father, I just, I thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to talk about you in freedom. 
We have to just reconnect and rediscover the story of Christmas. And I just pray this Christmas season, Lord, may it become alive in us. May it change us from the inside out. And may we not just be generous people at Christmas time, but may we be generous with our time, attention, and affection, Lord, all throughout the year. May that be a moniker of who we are. That God, we are your people and we are generous with who we are because you were generous with us. We thank you for this, Lord. Bless us this week. Bless us this busy season. And I thank you for everything you're doing. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. amen.